Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. And welcome back. I'm Connor Stone, here with Simran Narval. Hi, Simran. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I hope you're having a good day. So today, we have Simran here as our special guest on the podcast. We, we're going to do an interview about her work on stochastic gravitational wave backgrounds, which uh, by the end of the podcast will not sound intimidating, but might right now. Um, before we get into that, I think we should do a bit of a background so uh, we can get to know Simran a little bit better. First up, uh, she grew up in BC, so she's traveled across Canada to come to us here at Queen's, and she's uh, just finished her master's here at Queen's University, so that's very exciting. <laughs> um, she did her bachelor's at the University of Toronto and is extremely active in science outreach. So Simran has got herself involved in just about everything here at Queen's for our science outreach activities. Um, you're a coordinator for Let's Talk Science, involved with uh, Gemini P, the Ideas Initiative. You've been in an invited speaker at our observatory open houses and the Astronomy on Tap events. So you've, you've really been all over the place. Certainly uh, a big advocate for women and diversity in STEM, which is awesome. We need as much as that, of that as we can get. And uh, I hear you, you're a bit of a baker. So COVID has probably really been great for you with the, all the new baking stuff around, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been baking for a long time, but when COVID hit, since, you know, you can't really do anything else, my baking went up from a couple times a month to like a couple times a week <laughs> at the beginning. So that was really cool. I was able to, you know, learn how to make a lot of different things, like different, like cool types of bread and stuff and like practice my piping skills. So yeah, I think it's been really great for my baking at least. <laughs> oh yeah. Piping skills. There's, there's a lot to that. Um, I've I've seen some videos on YouTube, people doing all all sorts of crazy, fancy stuff with their piping. What uh, what's an example of something that you've you've made with your piping skills? Yeah, I, mine are definitely not at the level of what you probably seen <laughs> online. Um, usually, when I am piping, well, either I'll do just you know the simple thing on cupcakes, like the swirly one. Uh, but when I make brownies a lot of the time, I will try different piping techniques on the brownies because it doesn't really matter what it looks like if you're just eating a brownie. It's like, you know, making roses or like little like cross hatches and stuff like that. All right. You can get creative because as long as it tastes good, everyone's happy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, your research, as I said earlier, is stochastic gravitational wave backgrounds. But before we, before we really get into that, I think we should ask sort of the first question that I ask most of our uh, guests here is, 
what really got you interested in astronomy? How did, how did you get started? Um, so everyone has a different path to get to the level that you're at, recent masters of science. So <laughs> um, how, how did you get started? Yeah, great question. Um, growing up, I was always really interested in, in science and in space in particular. Um, but I was actually really torn growing up between going into astrophysics and going in and trying to be a classical musician because I started playing instruments when I was six years old, played them all the way until part with undergrad and then, you know, school took over. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so what I decided to do was I actually went to a fine arts middle school um, to try to, you know, choose because, you know, it's middle school. You you can explore more on what you want to do. And within my first year there, so in sixth grade, I kind of realized that the arts, so music and also drama, I've been in lots of musicals and plays, um, were more of a hobby, not necessarily a career path that I wanted. So I stuck it out for the fine arts middle school, but then I switched into a more academic high school to be able to, you know, go into astrophysics. So that's when I made my decision. But going and like doing all these fine arts trainings, I think was really, really helpful. For example, for like presentations and like speaking skills and stuff like that, like, you know, being in plays, like, really prepare you for that, which is which is useful so you aren't, like, as nervous when presenting at conferences and such. Well, you've really taken advantage of that because you've, you've been presenting all over the place. So, <laughs> so that's great, great skills to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's awesome you got that opportunity to try out both and really make the decision for yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was really lucky that we had, like, a public fine arts school um, where I grew up in Abbotsford. Um, but even, even if you don't necessarily have that, I definitely suggest if, like when you're younger to try as much as you can of the different things that interest you. So then you can figure out, you know, where are your like true passions lying for what you want to do going forward? Because, you know, your career, you can change career paths, but like what you do for your career, you're going to be doing it a lot. So you want to make sure it's something that you really care about. Yeah, for sure. Especially uh, in graduate studies when you're you're working <laughs> pretty much every day. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And within astrophysics, you've, you've really zeroed in on cosmology. And uh, so I wanted to ask what got you started in that? And uh, perhaps preemptively, what is Lightbird? Okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> so for cosmology, um, yeah, so in undergrad, you know, I was kind of trying to decide what exactly is the part of astro that I really, really want to do. Um, And, you know, you take courses and everything from planets and stars to galaxies, cosmology and stuff. And I started to realize that a lot of the things that really, really interested me when I was, you know, doing like little research things at home um, growing up or like even in middle school, one of my like science projects was on the Big Bang, Um, like different things like that. And realizing that all of that kind of stuff fit into cosmology and that that was really what interested me, you know, how the universe began, how it's evolving, how it's going to end and like why everything looks the way that it does. And those are all the questions that cosmology addresses. So that's um, a lot of what I went into. And then I was really lucky that I was able to get my undergraduate thesis on a cosmology topic. Um, It was it was on Lightbird. So it was forecasting for Lightbird, which essentially just means um, so Lightbird is a proposed uh, cosmic microwave background experiment, which I guess I can't do what that is. But it's essentially um, trying to measure a signal from the universe when it was about 300,000 years old. And what I did is I ran simulations, so I used computers to try to figure out how well this um, satellite will be able to constrain or like figure out how well different um, theories we have about the user universe would fit the data that the telescope could detect. So, you know, trying to characterize its noise and such. So that's what I did 
in my undergrad thesis, and I really, really loved it. Um, and that really solidified that this is the type of science I want to do going forward. Well, it's great you got an opportunity like that in undergrad. Um, I think not too many people get to work on a real experiment even do, during their undergraduate studies. And I've also got to mention, uh, you were really thinking big even in uh, middle school if you were doing projects <laughs> on the Big Bang. <laughs> yes, and one thing about that too, to like let all like, the kids know is like, when I gave that presentation, everybody was really bored, minus the teacher. The teacher really loved it. So even if your friends or the other people in your class don't think that you know these more nerdy like hobbies and passions are cool, like stick with it. Because now it's like, well, I get to literally do this like every day for my job. And it's really cool. It's definitely really cool. And now everybody wants to hear about it. You keep getting invited to give talks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is like really amazing and like yeah it's really cool to be able to do that and like share my love of science with people super fun to be able to share your passion and to get the positive feedback where everyone's exactly. everyone's really excited to talk about it mm -hmm. so um since, since we're on the topic of the big bang maybe we should go over some sort of broad overview and give people a bit of uh get people on the same page before we get into the more the specifics of your research so perhaps you could describe um, what the Big Bang is and what the CMB is. Yeah, great. So standard Big Bang cosmology is essentially um, just like the main model that, that we use to explain the universe. So it's our universe started in like a really, really small, hot, dense state. Um, if you've ever watched the Big Bang Theory show, you probably have heard the, the intro song where they say that. But that's essentially what we think happened. And then the universe... Um, expanded from there and initially expanded really, really fast through a period known as inflation, which we'll probably talk about because that's a lot of what I research. Um, and then we start having things like, you know, our normal matter forming. So, you know, like protons, or neutrons, electrons. So, you know, things that like make up you and me are like all the things we see around us. And then we start having, you know, like um, nuclei forming. So, you know, making elements and such. Um, and that all happens in the first three minutes of the universe. So like when it's a really like tiny infant baby, Universe then, was very busy at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. It, it grew up really fast. Um, and then when we go forward um, in time, we can get to a time period known as the cosmic microwave background. And the universe was about 300 or 400,000 years old. And essentially, what that time period is, is before the cosmic microwave background, everything was like really hot and really dense. So we had a bunch of photons or light particles, and then all of our you know, neutrons, protons, electrons. But there were so many of them the light particles would be bouncing off of them and being scattered in a bunch of directions. So think about, you know, if you're trying to get across the room and it was really, really full of people, you're probably going to hit into a bunch of people. It's going to take you a really long time to get to the other side of the room, if you ever can. But, you know, if the room's a lot, like, uh, it's home or dead and, like, there's a lot less people, you can get across the room and not hit into a single person. And that's essentially what happened with these photons or light particles. So the universe is really, really hot and dense and the photons are bouncing off of all of the matter until the universe cooled enough that um, all these like protons and electrons and such could start combining to make neutral hydrogen. And then these photons or light particles could free stream towards us. So that's the earliest point in time that we can take a picture of the light particles or the photons in the universe. So everything that came before that I explained, we have to use other probes. We can't like see it directly and to try to figure out what happened. Yeah, so then that's what the cosmic microwave background is. And then after that, um, the universe kind of goes through like a, like a 
not a dead phase, but nothing really happens until reionization, <laughs> which is approximately, I think it's like 200 million years ish old. Like, give or take, we don't know the exact number at all. Yeah, do we even really know? <laughs> I don't know. That's So, yeah, it, a while later, <laughs> um, uh, we have reionization, and our first uh, stars and galaxies start to form. And then, you know, th- those form and make, like, bigger galaxies and clusters of galaxies and all that kind of stuff. And then we can, you know, fast forward to what our universe looks like today at, like, about 13.8 billion years old. Where now, so we had all of our, like, normal matter forming in galaxies and such, and now we have something known as dark energy taking over, which is causing our universe to just like during inflation, start expanding really, really fast. <laughs> and things are expanding away from each other. But that's essentially our like main picture of, of how the universe formed and what happened. A brief history of the universe, if you will. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So we have a very speedy start to our universe and then uh, sort of fiery, hot, dense universe, which... Uh, expands to the point where now we now light can free stream through and we can see that light today. And I, I really find it quite remarkable that we can sort of get a picture of the how the universe looked like billions of years ago. And uh, that's, that's sort of the, where, you, where your, your studies sort of come in. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. But you mentioned, you mentioned a stage at the beginning where mm-hmm. the universe expands really fast really, really fast. That that would be inflation. Yes. And that, those first few moments of the universe where, where inflation is happening. Could you describe a little bit about what inflation is and why it was proposed, sort of what problems it solves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I think I'll answer them in the reverse order, just because I think it motivates Fair a little enough. bit about like, what inflation is. So yeah. we know from measuring the cosmic microwave background, that the universe is extremely uniform. So it looks the same on large scales, basically everywhere you look. And you can also see this when you take you know, galaxy surveys and you can look at, if you've seen any pictures of the cosmic web, how it looks the same everywhere. And that's really weird. And I'm going to use an analogy, which I really love, which I, I learned about from a textbook from Barbara Ryden, I believe it's called Introduction to Cosmology. But anyways, it's her textbook um, from second year. And um, she talks about a potluck and like imagine you were having like a dinner party or a potluck and you invited just a couple people over and both of them brought potato salad well you know it can kind of be a coincidence it's, it's a little weird that they both brought potato salad but you know it's something you can explain away but then imagine that you've invited like a thousand people over and every single one of them brought potato salad not only did they all bring potato salad they all brought the exact same amount um up to like five or six decimal places. So like 1.000001 kilograms of potato salad. Well, <laughs> there's absolutely no way this could be a coincidence anymore. They must have all been in contact or talked to each other before the party and decided to play this hilarious prank with all bring the exact same amount of potato salad. Well, this is actually what we see when we measure the cosmic microwave background. All the photons or the light particles are the exact same temperature up to micro Celsius or 0.000001 degrees Celsius, which is really weird. Because if you remember, I said the cosmic microwave background is when the universe is about 300,000 years old. So that means that like the largest uh, volume that they should have been able to talk to each other if the universe expanded normally would be approximately a million light years across where a light year is how far light can travel in one year. 
But so that's cool. a big distance, but not it big is. on the scale of the universe. Exactly. It sounds really big. But when you think about um, how you would measure that on the sky, that's only degree patches on the sky. So anything above just that one degree patch on the sky shouldn't be the same temperature, but it is. And that motivates having to um, have a mechanism where these light particles or photons could have been in contact or talked to each other early on to still be the same temperature. And that's what motivated um, inflation. Inflation gives you a mechanism where within a fraction of a second, the universe has exponentially accelerating expansion. So it expands extremely fast. And then after that, when you know we have normal radiation or matter taking over, it still expands, but at a significantly more modest rate. Um, and th that's essentially why we think inflation happened is because it can make it so all these light particles could have talked to each other and explain why they're all the same temperature. I see. So yeah, the the sort of uniform potato salad of our universe doesn't make sense unless you have some way for all of the potato salad people to talk to each other. <laughs> Exactly. And, and the most straightforward way to make that happen is to to start with a small patch where everyone could talk to each other and then just make that patch very quickly big enough for to, big enough to be our universe. Exactly. Yes. All right. So an inflation is almost more of something that we realize needs to be there, not something that comes out of the math. We 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 sort of make an observation and say, well, something must have caused this observation to occur. Yes, exactly. Uh, and essentially everything that happens in the time period before the cosmic microwave background, because we can't see the light particles before then, the way we figure out what happened in the earlier parts of the universe is essentially looking at things like the cosmic microwave background or how we observe the universe today and looking at what we see and trying to piece together what must have happened before then in order for this to make sense. So that's actually how we piece together the early universe, which I think is really cool because you're able to learn about something that you can't directly see. Exactly. It's almost like uh, you can't, walked into a room and there's a shattered glass on the floor and a basketball sitting on the side. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now we're going to switch tracks just for a bit because in, in, the, in your work, stochastic gravitational wave backgrounds. We should we should mention a little bit about what gravitational waves are and really how you think about them in your work because in fact you work with a very particular kind of gravitational waves. So uh, perhaps you can describe that and then we'll be all ready to go on to segment two where we get into the details. Okay, cool. So um, gravitational waves in a broad scope if anyone remembers, I believe it was 2015 when LIGO, or the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, detected the first gravitational wave signals. And that was extremely significant. They won a Nobel Prize for it. Like, it was that big. Um, but essentially, what they were measuring is these distortions in space and time. So we all are probably pretty, pretty familiar with the fact that, you know, we live in 3D space. Things are 3D, like, like a cup or like a ball or some things. And we also experience time. Because, you know, you're older today than you were yesterday. So time is going forward. So we have these four dimensions of space-time is what they call it. All it is is time and then your three dimensions of space. And they were able to measure changes in this space-time. And that was due to, I believe they measured two black holes merging. Um, so basically what black holes are is they're like extremely dense um, 
parts of space. And like they're so dense that light can't escape. So that's why we call them black holes because we can only see um, how they affect the things around them. For example, like the Nobel Prize from this last year from Andrea uh, Ghez. I'm sorry if I pronounced her name incorrectly. Um, by measuring how the stars are moving in the center of our own Milky Way, so our own galaxy, um, that's ex- that must be explained by the fact that there's a black hole at the center. Um, so just like how you can look at that, um, there's the Event Horizon Telescope that took a picture of the black hole. So that was like the, the orange picture. Um, anyway, so there's a really dense spot. And they were um, these two black holes are merging together. So they were orbiting and getting closer and closer. And because they're so dense and so massive, they, as they're rotating, are actually causing ripples to be emitted in the fabric of, of space and time. So you can think of it like um, if you threw a stone into a pond and you see the ripples coming out. That's kind of what it would look like, but that would be in two dimensions. So you have to imagine it in larger dimensions. But so it's essentially like ripples like in a pond, but in space and time itself. And, and that's what gravitational waves are, which is pretty intense, I think, <laughs> at least. Um, yeah, some of the most extreme things in the universe, you need those in order to create these gravitational waves. And in your case, it's, it's almost the universe itself creating them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that would be more like how you get gravitational waves like now. But yeah, so from inflation, um, you have like the, the universe itself expanding really, really fast. So that's causing like space and time itself to change. And that can cause gravitational waves to be emitted. But also... Um, there's a proposed particle. So, you know, you could think of like, like an electron or something um, that would have caused inflation. And after inflation ends, the particle doesn't just go away. And until it dilutes out enough for something else to take over and control the universe, it, it can still be doing things and interact with itself um, and can cause like essentially like a bunch of masses, I guess you can think of it, to be forming in these different locations in space and time. And they will evolve and get denser and change shape. And when they're doing that, they're going to change the way that they're pulling on space and time. And that causes gravitational waves to be emitted. And yeah, so essentially what I do is I try to use computers or simulations to figure out what those signals would look like. And unlike a black hole where, you know, LIGO measures like they call it like the chirp. So like just like a really intense signal and then it goes away. This would be because it's from the beginning of the universe, um, kind of like a signal that you could detect always and from like all directions. So it's almost like noise in there instruments in the gravitational wave experiments. So you have to do measurements for a really, really long time to be able to tease out the actual experiment noise. And then this like a constant small signal from the earliest times of the universe. So it's kind of like how if you have an old TV, the antenna and you and you change between channels, you get static. Part of that static is from the cosmic microwave background light. But yeah. in these experiments that look at gravitational waves, they're static. A, a part of it would be this signal that you study. Exactly. And yeah, so just to like reiterate more of what Connor just said, if anybody's old enough to remember analog televisions and you've seen the static, you're actually detecting the cosmic microwave background, which is really cool. That is a super fun experiment to do. Yeah. I don't know how many people could do it now. I don't know if anybody still has analog televisions, but if you do, you can try it out. I would, I would say go to Radio Shack, but that's not here either. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So I think that covers all our bases. And uh, so we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we'll sort of get into the weeds of what all of these specifics that you're studying are. Okay, great. All right. 
Bye. Hello, Nick here. Don't worry, I haven't gone anywhere and I'll be back in the next episode. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook at Queen's Observatory, all one word, or on Twitter at QU Observatory. If you'd like to see the talks from one of our past open houses, you can check out our YouTube page by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Let's get back to the amazing research. And welcome back. So, in the first segment, we covered a lot of background material that we need to understand your work, Simran, and you focus a lot on inflation, that really fast first part of our universe. But inflation is a a bit of a strange concept, so I think we should spend uh, a bit of time on that. And specifically, uh, you mentioned in the first segment that this inflaton particle. So could you tell us a little bit more about what this particle is and if or how it fits into the standard model of particle physics that we use to understand almost everything right now? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so if we were to compare the inflaton or the particle that caused inflation to anything in the standard model, it would be closest to the Higgs boson, which is uh, the only scalar boson that we know of. Um, and actually, the Higgs boson is really cool because it gives mass to, to all, all the other particles in our standard model. Um, and essentially, the way you can think of the inflaton, because it, it's a scalar field, would kind of be like the temperature in, in, in a room. In different parts of the room, you're going to have different temperatures, and you can measure your temperature in every point. But also, you can figure out, you know, what's the average temperature of your room? So the way that people tend to think about the inflaton is through inflationary potential, which essentially just shows you how, let's say, like the average temperature of your room would change over time. So it's kind of showing you showing you that. So as inflation is occurring, you have this average field value um, changing and until inflation ends. But then you're still going to have your field evolving. So, you know, your temperature or your field value is still going to be changing until it gets to the minimum of this potential. So you can kind of think like like a ball, um, like on like a ramp or like in a valley, and it could go up and down like each side of your ramp. So you have like essentially like the, the temperature, your field value going like uh, uh, oscillating back and forth, like like a ball, like in a valley. Um, and when it's doing that, you know, it can interact with itself. And that's what causes these like really large pockets of energy density or like masses um, to form and, and evolve as, you know, it's, it's losing some of its potential energy and the ball is like event, eventually settling. Like you can think of um, in like our normal, you know, like our normal like day-to-day life, kind of like friction will cause it to, to stop um, and like settle in its minimum. But the inflaton is pretty cool because it can settle in its minimum like that or it can actually decay into different particles, such as our standard model particles or particles of like dark matter and all these different cool things. And we, we have lots of different models that we think could have caused inflation so far. And you know, we're trying to figure out which one it actually is to figure out exactly what happened at the end of inflation. Did it decay into other particles? Did it just settle in its minimum? And, and what exactly happened? All right, so we're, we're starting with as we said in the first segment, this observation that something like inflation must have happened. And the way you think about it is with this, by, by trying to understand the physics of this inflaton, which is spread throughout the whole universe 
and you can you can picture it perhaps as a temperature everywhere in the universe or as a a ball that's um, sort of rolling down and up a hill in a valley mm-hmm. and these these two ways of thinking about it help you sort of understand how it would interact with itself which is very strange yes. <laughs> and, and with other other things in the universe yes. so so this inflaton is a way that you can actually conceptualize and write the mathematics around what what this inflation thing is. Yes, exactly. Awesome. And, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, and actually, with your inflationary potential, you can not only figure out, you know, how it can interact with itself and things like what kind of you know, signals could you see in the stochastic gravitational wave backgrounds you were talking about, but you can also use it to figure out. You know, what, what imprints or signatures would it leave in our cosmic microwave background? This is the earliest that, that we can see. Um, so it's actually really, really useful to, to talk about the inflationary potential and to use it. And that's why scientists use it so much is because you can figure out so many different ways to try to probe inflation, you know, through what types of gravitational wave signals could we detect today to what imprint would it leave in, in the cosmic microwave background? And can we see that imprint or not? Right. And for the, the imprint, what you're looking for... Um, are the results of this this oscillation, right? Where at the at the end stage of the inflation, the inflaton is is rolling back and forth inside this valley, or like a marble inside a bowl, going back and forth, um, doing doing this oscillation, mm-hmm. um, and it, that's that's what sort of creates these fluctuations, and that you'd then be able to observe. Is that correct? Kind of. Yeah, that would definitely (laughs) leave an imprint as well. But the main imprint that people uh, try to figure out when it comes to the cosmic microwave background and seeing it there is measuring through our tensor to scalar ratio or R, which is just a measure of our tensor perturbations, which are changes in space time due to these gravitational waves and our scalar perturbations, which are just our density fluctuations. So like how much matter are in different spots. Um, And when you are, you know, using math and trying to figure out what the value of this tensor scalar ratio or or R would be is, you know, it depends on your potential, but it depends on your potential at its mean field value, or just like in a room, the mean temperature value at the end of inflation. So that's the, um, the thing that's most important when you're trying to figure out what it would look like at the cosmic microwave background. I see. Okay. So this, this R value is, is pretty important. And you mentioned that scalar fluctuations are essentially density changes. If, if one spot of your room has a little more mass, like a person in it, mm-hmm. then it's got a higher density than the other part of the room, which just has air in it. And th- this would be changing all over the place inside the universe. Mm-hmm. But as physicists, we can take a mathematical big picture and just average it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about these tensor fluctuations? What what do those look like? Um, yeah, so, if, if, if you could say that without without math. <laughs> yeah, so I guess like conceptually, you would think of it just as like just kind of like the ripples in, in in a pond, right? Like there are changes in space time. But on the cosmic microwave background, when you try to measure them, you um, measure something known as the polarization of the light. So we know that you know, photons or light particles. Um, you probably have heard, you know, light could be a wave or a particle. So, you know, it's kind of special that way. It's kind of cool. Um, 
And so when light is traveling, it, you, you don't necessarily think of it as just like a particle. You think of it as a wave. And light has electric um, fields and magnetic fields. And one thing we know is that these electric and magnetic fields have to be perpendicular, so 90 degrees apart. Um, but as light is traveling, you know, something's interacting with it. It can change its overall, um, like, orientation. So, you know, you can think of if you have your electric fields facing straight up, and then you have your magnetic field facing straight to your side. So that would be like 90 degrees apart, like an L. That L shape can rotate and be in different directions as long as it's still an L. So these gravitational waves can cause the, uh, the polarization or the direction of your L, of your um, light particle, to change. And that leaves um, this imprint in our cosmic microwave background that we can measure. And that's one of the things such as the future CMB um, satellite lightbird is going to be measuring. It's going to be trying to measure this polarization or the direction of these L's of light um, to figure out, you know, how much gravitational waves could there be? Because if there was a lot, there would be a lot of this changing of direction of, of the L, a lot of this polarization. And if there's less gravitational waves, there'll be less of that. And you can try to figure out how much there was by measuring the polarization of your cosmic microwave background. I see. So the scalar fluctuations are those like global density fluctuations whereas the tensor fluctuations have a direction to them. The polarization sort of points in a particular direction. You can imagine if you, if you put on your telescope a, a big pair of polarized sunglasses, mm -hmm. then essentially, if there's lots of gravitational waves, then you'll be able to see a bunch of differences through these polarized sunglasses on your, on your telescope. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the one difference between like a normal polarized sunglass and like a, a detector, like a, a satellite detector and stuff would be, you know, your sunglasses are trying to block out all of one direction of light. I believe it's the horizontal polarization, but I'm not hundred percent sure because that shows up as glare in your light versus this, this detectors or um, like yeah, the satellites and stuff try to measure both directions. So they aren't trying to just block out one. So you only see one direction of polarization. So it's like having, you know, one uh, sunglass lens that detect that blocks out all the horizontal polarization only sees the vertical and the other one doing the opposite. So blocking out all the vertical and seeing all the horizontal to be able to figure out how much of each types of polarization they have. So yeah. right. And <laughs> if you have both, then you can then you can piece together the whole picture. Whereas with exactly. your sunglasses, you don't want the whole picture. You only want <laughs> the good light. Yeah, exactly. Or else it'd be really hard to see things. <laughs> I see. So this this R number the ratio of these two tells you how much of this polarization is there compared to how much of the um, the regular fluctuations are there. All right. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> more or less. I'm, I'm sure there's yeah. more to it. But, <laughs> but um, we, we get a sense of what this R number means. And the, mm -hmm. the R number is sort of the, the easiest way to say, to... to um, quantify the concept of how much gravitational waves are, are out there. Yes. Okay. Um, so now I, I, I think we've covered a lot of background at this point and we're going to, mm -hmm. we're going to get right into your work. Okay. So in, in your work, you, you study different models of inflation. So mm -hmm. all these concepts we've talked about right now are ways of ways of thinking about inflation in general, but mm -hmm. you actually, uh, you sat down, picked out a couple of very specific ideas, and tested them. Mm -hmm. And th these are these uh, E and T models. Yeah. So, so can you describe what these are and sort of 
why why you picked those ones to study. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are definitely the two main models that I chose. And essentially, um, for like conceptual purposes, the way that you can think of these different inflationary models, um, other than you know the motivation for them, is if you're thinking of like those hills, like you know rolling a ball in a valley, it would be like different shapes for your valley. So our T models is very symmetric. So like your hill on each side of your valley looks exactly the same. So it's like a very symmetric, like a U versus our E models are asymmetric. So each mountain on each side of your valley looks different from the other one. So it's, you know, it's going to go higher up one side and lower up the other because like there's there's different steepnesses. They, They look different on each side. So you've got Everest on one side and Kilimanjaro on the other. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and that's part of why these are so interesting for models is that, you know, like the actual shape of these like valleys are, are really, really different, which is really cool. Um, and show different signatures when you try to like do the simulation. And for, you know, you can have like your potential, you can have like different parameters that essentially tell, you, you know, how steep are these mountains? Um and you can change that really easily in the ENT models, which means that you can, um, it's almost like mimicking what other models can do by changing how steep each of these, um, these mountains are on each side of your valley, which is super useful. Because if you remember, we're talking about the cosmic microwave background, we're talking about, we can measure this one parameter R, our tensor scalar ratio. But as you can imagine, there's tons of models that can predict the same amount of gravitational waves, but they could have different potential shapes. So it would be really cool to figure out, you know, what would your stochastic gravitational wave backgrounds look like? And do they look different? And if they do, and we can detect them, even if we know what R value has to exist for our cosmic microwave background, we can maybe distinguish what type of model of inflation um, is more likely, even if they predict the same tensor to scalar ratio, based on what their gravitational wave signature looks like. I see. So you've, you've picked models very cleverly, which... If you squint, a lot of other models kind of look like them. Exactly. But, but you can still distinguish between the two of them. So you, you can get a sort of narrow down. When, once we get some sort of observation on this R value, then you'll, you'll be there to narrow down which class ne- needs more analysis. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a lot of what, yeah, my master's was on trying to start this type of work and, you know, motivate that. This is a really cool other way to try to measure it that could possibly help us figure out, you know, what, what type of model is actually more likely. Very cool. And, and in order to study this, did you uh, sit down with pen and paper and stay up all night? Or were you, were you uh, writing code and trying to simulate stuff? Yeah, so I think for either of those, you could easily stay up all night and do them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> But I personally like using computers. Um, these types of problems are really difficult to do with just pen and paper because um, gravity is really, really complicated <laughs> um, and, and is and simplifies in like really like you know low energy or like really simple scenarios. But when you think of like these really hot dense parts of the beginning of the universe, it's not really a simple scenario. So it's really, really hard to do with pen and paper. So I, I use computers, so I use simulations. We actually use the supercomputing clusters, so like these huge computers that you, you know, use your command line, kind of like a hacker to like go into to, to run your code. And yeah, so that, that's how I did my work was with computers and simulations. <laughs> I'll say um, writing computer code is not easy either. Definitely um, not. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. So um, in in this, this code, you, you created a, models that sort of um, 
they, you're not solving these equations on pen and paper. You're letting your code solve the equations little bits of uh, little bits at a time, yes. and and seeing how they change. And mm-hmm. you did this with what's called a lattice simulation. So could you describe to everyone what a lattice simulation is and why why it makes sense that that's what you use to understand the beginning of the universe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, essentially how a lattice simulation works, you can think of, um, so imagine you have like a cube and you wanted to be able to figure out like what was happening on, on your little cube, let's say like measuring the temperature of this cube. What a lattice simulation does is, um, is it puts like the same number of points in your, you know, each direction. So each of your 3D directions of this cube. So you have a bunch of points spaced out um, on this cube. And what the simulation does is it, you know, tries to figure out what is the temperature, if you're trying to figure out the temperature of a room, at each of these points on the cube. Then it will step forward in time and figure out, okay, at this time, what is the temperature in all these spots of the cube? And it does this over time. Um, So essentially how the lattice simulation works for the early universe would be specifically for the gravitational wave simulations is, you know, how much gravitational waves are being emitted in these different parts of the cube. And it sees how that uh, changes over time. So you can figure out, you know, well, you can figure out what did your signal look like at all these different times. And then, you know, through your whole simulation, like what would they look like now? So that's essentially how they work because they're just measuring a bunch of different spots on a cube and, and see how they evolve over time. Right. And, and what's really important is that, um, because you, you've got all of these different points in the cube, you, you couldn't possibly write out an equation on paper for all the ways that they interact. But in yeah. the computer, you can have each point uh, make, make an effect on the other point, and then that one makes an, an effect back. And so you can, actually, uh, you can actually see how energy or gravitational waves bounce around inside this cube, sort of very stepwise, one step at a time. Exactly, yes. And... Uh, the these equations that you use to to sort of tell the computer how each next step is going to happen, how um, one point affects a nearby point. Um, how, how do you how do you get this started? So where 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 do you begin your simulation from? Great question. Okay, so even though you know I try to figure out what's what happens with inflation, how can we detect inflation? There's actually a subtlety for what I'm simulating. It's not actually during inflation. So how the um, simulation works is you begin by giving it, you know, your it's your mean field value momentum. But you can just think of it like how fast is it moving in what direction, and um, like what's like your mean temperature, like the, the mean value of your field. You give it that. It solves something known as the Klein-Gordon equation. But the only thing that's important is essentially is your equation of motion. It tells you how this inflaton field will change over time. Um, and it solves it until inflation's over. And then it uses those as like your new mean field value momentum, like mean temperature and like how fast you're moving, what direction. And it uses that as the beginning steps of your um, simulation. So it uses that as the mean value, so like your average value, but then gives it tiny changes all over this lattice, this grid, um, and starts evolving from there. So what I'm what I'm simulating is from something known as preheating or reheating. So it's essentially when our inflaton or the particle that caused inflation is like oscillating in the valley, like, like, like a ball, like in a valley. That's the part I'm simulating. So it's the signal from right after inflation, when our inflaton is rolling and going back and forth in this valley of its potential. And you can run many of these simulations where you try the this is where the E and the T modes come in here, right? Because 
when the input time is oscillating in that valley, you get to decide what that valley looks like and then see yeah. the consequences. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and one really cool thing that we found was um, for our T models or you know the symmetric valleys, like the same mountains on each side, we see a lot of these, um, they're called oscillation formations, but essentially we see a lot of these, like essentially a bunch of like masses popping up in, in space and time and evolving, which causes our gravitational wave signal to increase significantly because if you have these huge pockets of like energy density or mass and they're interacting with each other, it's gonna be like, like the black holes, you're gonna have huge changes in our space and time, like huge ripples being emitted versus our E models. So the asymmetric ones, like two different mountains on each side, we don't really see any of this. Um, we just see like background gravitational waves. So just from the fact that the inflaton is evolving and changing, um, we just see like a more modest uh, amount, which is really cool and not necessarily expected at the beginning. Um, but yeah, that, that's what we ended up seeing. Well, it's great to get an unexpected result. That's that's the fun part of science is when mm. you say, oh, I don't know why, why this is happening. <laughs> but yeah. I guess in your case, you do know, but you didn't know ahead of time. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and so this, these, uh, these masses that just start to appear in the symmetric model, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they sort of come out of the energy that's extracted from this oscillon as it's, or this, this oscillating uh, inflaton. Is that yeah. so? That's that's the friction that you mentioned earlier is creating these these masses, and then losing losing it to the gravitational waves. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. <laughs> I, I think the way I would think about it would be a little bit opposite. So for example, in our E model, so the, ace, the asymmetric potential with two different mountains, we believe that one of the possibilities about why we aren't seeing these oscillons forming, these masses forming, is because there's too much, it's called Hubble friction, but you know, like friction in the universe, you can think of it like our normal friction, but like on whole universe scales. And that's washing it out because since it's asymmetric, there's an initial um, large inhomogeneity or like large differences in the field because the potential looks different on both sides versus the E models. It comes from the fact that it's inter- like it's interacting with itself a lot. And this, you know, universe friction isn't really washing that out. So basically what happens is instead of, you know, like how in your room, you have like the temperature being relatively stable throughout the room. Instead, it would be like walking like, uh, I don't know, like half a meter in front of you and all of a sudden it being like a 10 degree difference. That, that would be insane. It, it's like a huge change. And that's yeah. essentially what, what's happening is it's causing like these pockets, I guess it would be more like 10 degrees hotter, like to be a lot more dense. And then, um, and, and they're evolving over time. All right. So the, these pockets where if you walk around the room, there's suddenly a 10 degree change. You would, you would certainly notice that. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and that's what, um, that's what your research is then showing if we can make an observation of this R value and uh, basically just get more sensitive measurements of the cosmic microwave background, we should be able to see whether or not um, there were there were all of these hot patches or they weren't there. And that would tell us which set of models to to uh, search for more, to, to look into more, the E or the T models, right? Yeah, that would be a lot of what my like undergrad thesis research was on was like using the cosmic microwave background to figure that kind of stuff out. Um, throughout my master's, though, it was a bit more in- independent from what the cosmic microwave background is measuring because that's like a different way to look at it. It was more figuring out what would our gravitational wave signals look like 
and trying to figure out can things like LIGO or future versions of LIGO, like Lisa, can would they be able to detect it? And one unfortunate, but like not necessarily unfortunate thing is that the, the frequency or the energy of the gravitational waves um, are very, very different for what we predict from at the end of inflation compared to what these experiments could detect like LIGO and LISA. So a lot of what my work showed is in order to detect these gravitational waves from inflation to be able to see the signal, um, we really need to build experiments there <laughs> to be able to try to probe it. So that's a lot of what my work was showing. Well, I think that's it. That's exciting. You sort of uh, demonstrated a need for a new type of experiment. We've, yeah. we've everyone's been looking in one area, but you're sort of shining a light in a new dark part of the room and saying, "Everybody, go, look over here." <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it also makes sense that their experiments were at these different energy scales or frequencies because their main goal is to measure things like black holes colliding with each other or really dead stars, like neutron stars colliding with each other, which you know, given the vastly different scales <laughs> and different like times that they happen, it makes sense that they're at very different energies or frequencies. Um, but yeah, basically what I, what I showed is that's awesome. But also if you want to see things from inflation, maybe you should make things over here instead or as well, not instead. As well. Yes. Yeah, as well. well that's exciting. They, we, we've sort of demonstrated that gravitational waves are certainly an exciting area where um, observations can be made. And now, you've sort of found a new new class of gravitational wave observations, experiments that, that we need to construct. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's very exciting. And I, I think that's a good place to leave off. Uh, so we, we've sort of established what inflation is, what uh, specifically in inflation you've studied, and the code that you've written in order to sort of probe and play with all these different models and see what results come out. It's very exciting that you did find this, uh, this difference between the two models that you were comparison, comparing. One thing I'd like to note, though, before is it wasn't the way that uh, astronomy works is it wasn't a code that, that I wrote. It, what happens is, you know, people write these really big codes and then you add on to them. So it was a code that was written that I used and added on to just to note, like, Astronomy is really collaborative, and it, it wasn't me that just like wrote this whole code. Yeah, that, that's certainly a, a a big part of astronomy, and yes. I think I think what we'll do is we'll go into that on our on our next segment. Okay. So right okay. after right after the break, we'll talk about sort of the the connected web that you're a part of. Okay. All right. Bye. Hi, it's Nick again. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. If you just can't get enough science, you should check out the McDonald Institute on Facebook and Twitter. They're dedicated to advancing astroparticle physics in Canada and have been a big supporter of the observatory. You can also look for your local branch of the Royal Astronomical Society. They can teach you how to get into astronomy from your own backyard. Finally, the Astronomy on Tap program is an excellent way to learn about astronomy in a more casual environment. Links to all these online programs that I mentioned will be provided in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion about the universe. And welcome back. So in segment two, 
we we got really got into the weeds of your work, Simran, and uh, we we learned all of these really neat things about how inflation works in specifics and how uh, how you studied it using these really specialized codes. And something that we ended off with was a an excellent comment by you, in, in that the astronomy community is not is not very isolated. We <laughs> we all work together. And in your case, um, you worked with you worked with code that had already been written, and so the code that you wrote was more adjustments and extensions to this code. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the H lattice code that you sort of built your built your research research project on? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, the, yeah, because H code was written by somebody else, um, and it's really really amazing. But the, the, one, the one caveat is that it was written about like 10 years ago when we had, you know, really minimal observations or constraints, like constraints are a better word, on, you know, how inflation could happen. So with that in mind, uh, you can think about, you know, we're still trying to figure out how much gravitational waves could have been produced by inflation. And that directly relates to um, the exact time inflation happened at, or in other words, like the temperature of the universe or the energy of the universe at that time. What I looked at were things known as low-scale inflationary models, which just mean like really low energy models. So more at the lower end of what um, of when the universe could have had inflation. But um, there's you know a bit of changes or differences you have to add to the equations if you're thinking of like a, a higher temperature, a higher energy model versus a lower one. So I just had to do you know some modifications um, to make it work for these really low scale models um yeah so that's essentially like the the things that that i did with it but it's a really yeah. amazing code base and super useful and that that's a great thing about astronomy is that each researcher has their own niche where they're sort of trying to dive in as deep as they can and get as much as they as much computation out of their supercomputer as possible and so once one person writes something really useful other people come in write their own adjustments to it and the code base builds from there and exactly. the, the whole community can advance forward and start to ask more and more sophisticated questions using these codes mm -hmm. so it's, it's great to be a part of something like that and in in that vein you mentioned that um there's the uh, the code was originally written for a different scale of models mm -hmm. uh whereas your models are, you said, low-scale inflation. Mm -hmm. um, what sorts of other models are out there? I'm sure that with something as big and important as inflation, there's got to be there's got to be lots of ideas going around for for what this could be. Definitely. So, um, so I guess I should start with like you know observationally what what could happen. Um, well. Currently, all of our observations with the cause of microwave background have only told us how much gravitational waves at most the universe could have, but not how little they could have. So it just has like an upper bound on how much. And the cause of microwave background, you know, does have a limit to how low of um, gravitational waves could be uh, detected because, you know, you can only detect that like polarization or like the changing L like, to, to a certain point where it wouldn't be changed enough to ever be able to detect. So you can arbitrarily go a lot lower, which is one thing the stochastic gravitational wave background could be used for too, is to go to even lower parts that the cosmic microwave background can't actually probe. 
Um, so there's a lot of like, you know, open space in, in what could happen. You know, there's these ENT models. There's lots of other models of inflation where, you know, it's just the one particle, just the inflaton. There's also different models where you can have other particles too, that, you know, the, the inflaton can be in charge of part of it and another particle can be in charge of another part of it or be the particle that decays into the standard model or dark matter, things like that. Um, so there's lots of cool things. There's, there's also alternatives to inflation, even though inflation is fairly um, widely thought of to, to be what happened. There are other models such as bouncing cosmologies, which sound, which sound pretty cool. And they kind of are exactly what they sound like. We had a universe and then it like compressed a lot to essentially kind of like what we think of as the Big Bang and then expanded again. So, you know, like this part of the universe, like it looked like this before, it got really small and then it got big again. And because of that, all these um, like photons or light particles could have talked to each other before the universe got really small and expanded again. So there's, there's things like that. Um, and one thing that would be really cool is being able to figure out, you know, what gravitational wave signals would they produce? Um, and, and try to measure those. We know in general, those produce quite large gravitational wave signals. So, you know, there's less and less of those models that are still consistent with what we observe, but there still are those models. Um, so there's all those types of things to, to look at. Um, well, you can, you can never doubt the creativity of theorists. There's, exactly. There's always like an infinite supply of ideas and a bouncing universe sounds very fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, the one thing though to, to note when, when you are, you know, if, if you do get into science or if you want to come up with your own models for things is that you can arbitrarily, you know, add as much complexity to something as you want. But it's always best to try to make a model or an explanation for something as simple as possible. You don't want to overcomplicate it because nature doesn't tend to overcomplicate things. You know, it tries to do just as much as it needs to to make something work. So you should I'll always try that. to keep that in mind. <laughs> Tell that to my quantum mechanics textbook. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but yes, for sure, there's, uh, there's always a, a beautiful simplicity at the core of, of most physics. And uh, there's, there's sort of the concept of the Occam's razor, where all things yeah. being equal, the simplest answer is the right one. Yeah. So while, while you're considering um, a single inflaton and... Um, these these very general models of inflation, you're you're sort of trying to narrow in on what's the simplest thing that could explain these observations. Mm-hmm. All right, and and of course there's all these these other models which take different approaches at it. Um, so it's it's really fun to see how how each one plays out, and especially the kind of work that you do that tells us. How, how could we tell them apart? How would we know which one is the right one? Mm-hmm. Um, so an, an extension where, where your work is really on how do we tell these models apart? Another question to ask is, what, what do these inflation models uh, teach us about other parts of the universe? Is there, are there connections? You mentioned that perhaps this inflaton could decay into dark matter. Um, are there are there connections where once we know what model of inflation we're dealing with, that would actually teach us about dark matter or dark energy or other mysteries that we have in our universe? Yeah, so there's actually like a lot of different things that it could teach us, but obviously we have to figure out what it is to figure out which one it is. But um, 
just like if you can think of like our normal particles in our standard model, um, different particles can interact with different particles um, through things like, you know, your electromagnetic forces or through gravity or through things like that. And depending on what the inflaton is, it can have these different interactions. And if it does, it could have decayed into our standard model, which is really cool. But we know that there's things like dark matter, which is just called dark matter because we can't see it like with photons, but we you know, are fairly convinced it exists because it can solve tons of things we see. For example, how fast galaxies are rotating. They could only rotate that fast if there was you know, like a bunch of other mass that we can't see. They explain part of um, the signal that we measure from the cosmic microwave background. They can explain why we have you know, the cosmic web and all these galaxy structures, how different um, galaxies are merging, like the bullet cluster. Like they can explain a lot of things. And if the inflaton has interactions or you know, just like the electromagnetic force, but you know, something different <laughs> because dark matter doesn't ex interact with that, um, it could have decayed into that and it could have made the dark matter. And there's different models of inflation I could explain what, you know, some of this dark matter is if it interacts with these different types of dark matter. Another really cool thing that some people look at is, I believe it's called quintessence, is, you know, so we know dark energy is causing the universe to expand really fast again. Um, and just, you know, the inflaton also causes the universe to expand really fast. So there's the question of, was it the same particle that, you know, was in a certain, like, a really fast expanding phase and then wasn't for a long time and maybe is doing it again? And that can cause dark energy. Um, there's, they aren't required to be the same thing, but there are theories for that. That could be one of the possibilities. So, you know, once we figure out what actually happened with inflation, it could possibly help us answer a lot of these open questions that we have in, in astronomy and cosmology right now. That's very exciting. And certainly the, the best thing that can happen in science is when you, when you solve one problem and realize that it actually solves a bunch of other problems that you'd been working on um, in tandem with that one. So, exactly. so that that's that's really cool. And is there is there any connection specifically with these E and T models, or do those do those just represent classes of more specific models? Good question. Would, um, the E and T models actually both are of the same class of like broader class of models, which is called the alpha attractors, which sounds really scary, but. Essentially, they depend on this parameter alpha. That's just what the parameter is called. It's a Greek letter in physics. We have Greek letters representing everything. Um, and when you change the value of alpha, so we know, um, you know, the potential is symmetric for T models and not symmetric for E models, but you can change the alpha parameter to change the, the slope of the potential. Um, so yeah, that's essentially what those are. But even if like the E or T model ends up being true, you know, there's all these energy scales it could exist at. So there's a lot of work that we still need to do to figure out, you know, which model it is <laughs> and, and what energy inflation happened at. All right. Well, it's very exciting to know that those connections can exist, mm -hmm. but definitely that's a sort of a, a next step beyond where, where your work was focused on for the master's research. Exactly. And so that, that brings up my next question perfectly, which is, what are the next steps for this work? Where, where would you like to, to take this if you had more time, more computing power? Um, what, what questions are still left open sort of at, at the end of your thesis? Yeah, so I think some of the most important things that would, I think should happen um, as an extension to this research for like, if I was continuing along with this master's would be you know, looking at more models of inflation. It would be great to have like almost like a catalog of like all their different spectra, what they look like. 
But also, as more and more experiments start to get built and get to measure things, and as more and more people predict what these gravitational wave signals look like, we need some sort of like software or like computer programs to figure out, you know, what models best fit the data and which models are we a lot less confident in. That, that, that type of software exists to some extent for like our cosmic microwave background, but it doesn't yet necessarily exist for the stochastic gravitational wave background set of, of science. And I think it's extremely important to develop like a code framework to be able to do this kind of work and figure out as we are getting more data, what models actually best fit the data and which ones can we, you know, have a lot less confidence in and not spend all of our time focusing on that. And I think that's something that really, really needs to be made. I see. So your your work took a model and found out what it would look like. Mm-hmm. But you want the reverse problem to be solved as well. Once we make an observation and we know what it looks like, how do you go backwards and pick what model should create that? And, exactly. That, and that's that, always a hard question. <laughs> that's like the part of science, like doing both sides of that is like what I find the most interesting. Because I, I really, really love to be able to figure out all these cool new ideas of the theory. But also, in my like for me, it's, well, the only reason to figure do all this stuff with all these cool theories is to figure out like can it actually spin the universe and what is the universe telling us about what actually happened. So you know that's one of my goals going forward in my career is to like try to develop things like this. Excellent, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how beautiful the theory is if it doesn't describe reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so that that again brings me on to to my next question and um, what are the next steps for you? What what are where, where are you headed next? You've you've just graduated from your master's, and uh, well, where where's the next stage for your career? <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually starting my PhD um, next month, so in September, at the University of Toronto in astrophysics. Um, you don't so waste I'm any time about that. Pardon? You don't waste any time. <laughs> no. Uh, to be, I, I eventually want to be like a professor and a researcher. So there's a lot of schooling you have to do for that. So. You know, by the time I'm done my PhD, that'll be like 10 years in school, including undergrad. So, you know, in my opinion, it was like, let's try to get this done so I can get to my goal faster. But some people take breaks and that works best for them. And that's also great. All right. So you're you're moving on to your PhD at U of T. And um, how does how does the program there work? Do you know what you're going to be studying? Yeah. So uh, the program at U of T uh, changes depending on if you're going in with the master's or not. Uh, in the Department of Astronomy Astrophysics specifically. So there you can do two options. Either you can go in right from undergrad, and that's a five-year degree, where in the first year you do two different projects with two different professors, and then in, going into the second year you choose, you know, what you want to do for your full thesis, um, like for the rest of the four years. But I'm going in because I have a master's already, I'm doing the four-year track. So I go in with a supervisor already and a project of mine, and I'll essentially just, you know, hit the ground running and go, and go on that. I'm actually... Lucky enough to be working with uh, the professor that I did my undergrad thesis with, and she's absolutely amazing. So I'm really excited to be able to do that. Well, she must have liked your work in undergrad if she's uh, hiring you back again. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's exciting. You get to sort of extend on a project connected with the, the same team that you were working with in your undergraduate studies. So that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think to to close off our interview, I should ask you a, a question for that perhaps some of the people listening might want to know, which is what advice would you have given 
your past self before starting on this this road of astronomy and cosmology what would you what what sort of uh tips would you give your younger self before heading in yeah i guess it's a tough question it is a tough question (laughs) um I guess so, like, if it was just more to, like, a general person, my advice would be, you know, never give up. And no matter what other people are saying to you, if you really, really love something, you should continue to do it. Um, I think some of the advice that I've, you know, had to learn the hard way and things I should really implement in my own life is, you know, when things get really, really hard in your life or really horrible, unforeseen circumstances happen, it's okay to, like, take a break, take some time off of school if you need, um, and, like, recover from that. (laughs) That that's something that I wish that you know I knew what, when I was younger, <laughs> like through, through undergrad, and that's something that's really important. Even if you know everybody else is finishing off their school and moving on forward, like if if you need to take a break for your own like sanity and mental health, it's completely okay to do so. Yeah, that's certainly advice that's is really important in science. Is mm-hmm. you can't separate the science and the scientist. So we're definitely all humans doing this, and we we need to take care of ourselves before going on and that will help us do the best research that we can really yeah exactly all right well that's that's certainly some great advice take care of yourself and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i i think that's where where we'll close off from there um thank you simran for for joining us and explaining your really cool research about the beginning of the universe and the different different ways that that could have happened yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a great time. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was really cool. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Birth. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.